Hello and welcome to The Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at the lives of great historical figures who have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. This episode will move from where we were in episode two, at one end of the Greek world, to the complete opposite end. We'll be in Sicily, in the great Greek city-state of Syracuse. There, we'll learn about Dion, who brought great hope to a city crushed by decades of dictatorial rule, but in the end, was only partially able to fulfill his promise as a liberator. Maps and images can be found on the website, almostforgotten.squarespace.com. If you have any questions or comments, you can email me at almostforgottenpodcast.gmail.com or find me on Twitter, at the Almost Forgot. This is Season 7, Episode 3, Dion, and this is The Almost Forgotten. Dion of Syracuse was born in the late 5th century BC, and, like Lucan, he flourished in the first half of the 4th century. He was born in the powerful Greek city-state of Syracuse, located on the southeast coast of the island of Sicily. It was a bit far from the Greek mainland, but it was close enough to be involved with the Greek politics and wars of the time. So, what was going on in the first half of the 4th century BC? Well, the Greeks and the Carthaginians ruled the Mediterranean. Lucan was king of Panticopium. Marcus Furius Camillus was leading Rome back from... Wait a second, we just did this. Look, I know not everyone is listening to these in order, but I record these in order, and, well, I'm just not going to go through the world tour again. We just did it. You should know what was happening in the world because the last episode took place pretty much at the exact same time, just at the other end of the Greek world. Okay, so on the complete other side of the Greek world from Lucan and the kingdom of the Quarian Bosporus was Sicily and the city of Syracuse. Sicily had been colonized by Greeks as early as the 700s BC and was broadly considered part of Magna Graecia, the Greek settlement of southern Italy. Syracuse itself was said to be founded by a Corinthian named Archias in the 730s. It was a planned city with the city center on the Ortigia, a small island just off the mainland. Over time, Syracuse grew to become a powerful city, and it started founding colonies of its own on Sicily. As it grew, it established itself as the power in eastern Sicily, and it eventually came into conflict with the Carthaginians. The Carthaginians controlled most of the western half of the island, and defeating them in 480 BC ushered in what was really Syracuse's golden age. This victory, by the way, did stop the Carthaginian advance, but it didn't force them off Sicily. The 5th century saw mostly democratic rule in the city as it began to flourish. Towards the end of the 400s, the city was invaded by a different democracy, Athens. The pretext had something to do with Athenian allied cities, but it was really done to give them the upper hand over Sparta during a relatively quiet period in the Peloponnesian War. Despite having a rough go of it early on, Syracuse held out, and eventually the Athenians' massive invasion force was defeated. Most consider this to be the key turning point in the Peloponnesian War, which eventually led to the defeat of Athens. Syracuse's democracy 
devolved into a tyranny, to put it the way Plato might have, when one of their leading citizens seized power in 405 BC. His name was Dionysius, and Dionysius would go on to rule Syracuse until his death. He spent much of the 390s fighting against the Carthaginians, although he too failed to push them off the island. He seemed to always be at war. He besieged and destroyed Regium on the toe of Italy after they sided with the Carthaginians, and he fought beside Sparta in their war with Corinth. He gained a reputation throughout the Greek world, and under him, despite the end of their democracy, Syracuse continued to flourish. According to J.B. Berry in his book A History of Greece, quote, Under Dionysius, Syracuse had risen to become a great power. In strength and dominion, in influence and promise, she outstripped all the cities of the mother country, unquote. Dionysius was a tyrant by both ancient and modern usage. He was cruel, he maintained his power by force, and he trampled on his people's rights. While he did pay lip service to the city's constitution, he paid it no heed in daily governance. He fortified the city's Acropolis, which was on the Ortigia, and secured himself and his closest advisors there. He was apparently a strong and innovative military leader. Barry credits him with making the first use of the catapult, apparently invented by his engineers. Perhaps more consequently, he credits him with being an innovator in the type of combined warfare that was eventually adopted by Philip of Macedon and his son Alexander the Great. Dionysius eventually extended his control to Greek city-states in Sicily, as well as to Italian cities across the Strait of Masana. Now, when he first came to power in Sicily, he married a woman named Aristomachi. Aristomachi's father, Hipparinus, was a big shot in the city himself, probably wealthy and powerful, and clearly an ally of the tyrant. Hipparinus's other child, Aristomachi's younger brother, the tyrant's brother-in-law, was named Dion. Now, at the time of the marriage, Dion was a young child, but being the brother-in-law of the tyrant, he was afforded certain privileges. He was no doubt wealthy and raised to be well-educated and to serve his city and its tyrant. We don't know much about his childhood, but we do know two things that affected his life a great deal. The first is, thanks to his family, he became a close advisor of Dionysius. The other is that he was a student and disciple of Plato. Dion was clearly intelligent, and when Plato actually came to Sicily in 388 BC, the then 20-year-old Dion studied under him. According to Plutarch in his Parallel Lives, quote, Dion was then quite young, but of all the companions of Plato, he was by far the quickest to learn and the readiest to answer the call of virtue, as Plato himself has written and as events testify, unquote. Perhaps his study of Plato helped him gain wisdom, or perhaps his study of Plato was just an indication of his great wisdom. But either way, Dionysius was very happy with Dion as an advisor, and trusted him not just for his loyalty, but for his good counsel as well. Barry calls Dion his most trusted advisor at the end of his reign. Plato, in turn, saw someone who had access to a city tyrant, potentially a very powerful ally. He believed that perhaps Dion, his enthusiastic student, would help him put his political theories into action. Keep in mind that Plato wrote the Republic, 
a dialogue on how to properly run a city-state. And Plato wasn't a democrat. He believed democracy led directly to despotism. Rather, his ideal form of government was run by a wise aristocracy and led by a philosopher king. So, if he could get a philosopher in power, or turn a king into a philosopher, he'd be able to put his theories into practice. The young Dion convinced his older brother-in-law to meet Plato, no doubt trying to get a bit of philosophy into the tyrant. Now, the thing about Plato's philosopher kings is that they needed to have virtue, and Plato felt that in general, tyrants lacked virtue, which is, I suppose, part of the distinction between a tyrant and a philosopher king. It's admittedly much more complicated than that. He felt a ruling aristocracy without a wise philosopher king would degrade into various forms of government until it eventually became a democracy, which would in turn yield to a demagogue who would become a tyrant. It's probably even more complicated than that, but I'm not trying to do a discourse on Plato's Republic. If you do want to hear that, I do recommend the History of Philosophy podcast. Anyway, back to Plato about to tell Dionysius he was a bad person. So, Plato told Dionysius he was a bad person, in front of, like, a crowd of people who kind of ate it all up. Dionysius was, of course, not happy, because he was a brutal tyrant. He sent Plato away from Syracuse, on a ship with a certain Paulus the Spartan. He asked Paulus to either kill Plato or sell him into slavery. Paulus may be more interested in making a few drachmas than being known as the guy who murdered Plato, went to the city of Aegina. Aegina was at war with Athens, and happily turned the Athenian philosopher into a slave. Eventually, one of Plato's friends or admirers paid to free him. At least, that's the Plutarch version. In another version, Dionysius was just going to have Plato executed, and it was only through Dion's intervention that Plato ended up being sold into slavery rather than killed outright. Whatever the truth, Plato was gone from Syracuse, and Dion was... Just fine, actually. While the little get-together with the great philosopher didn't go so well, Dionysius still seemed to trust Dion, and his position at the tyrant's court didn't appear to falter. In fact, Dion was sent as an ambassador to Carthage, indicating his high standing with the tyrant. As already mentioned, Carthage held territory on Sicily. Dionysius had to conduct diplomacy, or war, with them over much of his rule. He went to war with them in the 390s, and after that war concluded in what was probably a stalemate, diplomacy between the city-state and the empire continued. Dionysius was a consequential ruler, turning Syracuse into a powerful city-state and involving the Greeks in wars with Carthage on Sicilian lands. It's also quite possible that he was the leader in the legendary Sword of Damocles story. In this story, Damocles was a courtier, who talked of how jealous he was of Dionysius' power. So Dionysius told him he could rule from the throne the next day and set up a sword to hang over the throne suspended by a single horsehair in order to convey the danger he faced. It makes sense that this most certainly apocryphal story was about the elder Dionysius, who lied, cheated, and probably killed his way to the throne and was not able to rule without constantly watching his back. The tyrant died in 367 BC, by some accounts poisoned by his doctors while he was already pretty sick. This may have been at the instigation of his son, an heir apparent, also named Dionysius. 
Dionysius the Younger became the next tyrant of Syracuse after his father's death. And it's possible the sort of Damocles story actually involved him instead. It's a story that we only know the guy's name, not his number. Anyway, at this point, Dion was about 40 years old and was considered now the wise old advisor of Dionysius I. Dionysius II was probably born about 10 years after Dion in the early 390s. Importantly, he was the son not of Dion's sister Aristomachi, but of Dionysius the Elder's other wife, Doris of Locri. When Dionysius II became the tyrant, Syracuse was in some sort of conflict with Carthage again, and he was not sure how to proceed. Dion stepped forward and said he'd go negotiate for the tyrant if that's what he wanted, or he'd fund and man triremes himself if war was the choice. Enthusiastic, but it doesn't seem like the best advice. I mean, he didn't really tell him what to do. He just said, do what you want and I'll be super duper helpful. Regardless, this seemed to make a great impression on the young tyrant, and he too valued Dion greatly, at least initially. Eventually, all of the other courtiers and advisors started telling Dionysius that Dion was bad news. The typical story, hangers-on trying to get the man with the tyrant's ear kicked out. Not that Dion was thrilled with his new leader, either. Dionysius had a reputation for indulgence, and Dion seemed to be annoyed by his behavior. Dion thought perhaps he could improve his lot by teaching the young tyrant. He worked to convince him to educate himself, to bring leading minds of the Greek world to Syracuse, that sort of thing. In other words, he still saw an opportunity to make a philosopher king out of the buffoon. And Dion worked his magic a bit, even getting his lord excited for the idea. Dionysius began sending letters to Athens, trying to get Plato himself to return to Syracuse. It became the news of the day among the philosophers of the time. Ooh, Dionysius wants Plato to go over and teach him. Think the old man will do it? Plato indeed decided to return to Syracuse, despite all the issues he had on his previous visit. I mean, remember, he ended up being sold into slavery. Plato himself wrote, quote, What tipped the scales eventually was the thought that if anyone ever was to attempt to realize these principles of law and government, now was the time to try. This, then, was the bold purpose I had in setting forth from home, and not what some persons ascribed to me. Above all, I was ashamed lest I appear to myself as a pure theorist, unwilling to touch any practical task." Plutarch also notes that Plato thought there was still a chance to do something truly special, and in doing so, completely fix war-torn Sicily. Yeah, good luck. Plato arrived to great fanfare, and he was well-received by the tyrant. But behind the scenes, other men were working to subvert Dion, and by extension Plato. They were worried things might change, and how are you going to extort the people? if you've got a benevolent philosopher king in charge. Or even if the tyrant just listened to Dion all the time. They started telling Dionysius that this was a trap, and that Dion, who was his half-uncle or whatever, really was trying to set up a new aristocracy, and he'd put the children of his sister, Aristomachi, in charge, rather than Dionysius. And hey, didn't the Athenians try to conquer us like 50 years ago in the Peloponnesian War? And now you're going to let this Athenian philosopher just come in and run the city? 
Come on, this was probably their plan all along. As they continued to talk, the relationship between the tyrant and his advisor soured. Dion's enemies at court eventually brought forward a letter that he had written to the Carthaginians. It basically said, if you want peace, you shouldn't negotiate with Dionysius unless I'm there. This wasn't like egregious treason or anything, but it wasn't going to endear him to the tyrant who was already starting to dislike him, and it seems like this was enough to tip the scales. Dionysius met with Dion one day, walked him down to the docks, and then produced the letter and shoved him off on a boat. No discussion, no nothing, just go on, get out of here. The exile did not have the intended effect in the city of Syracuse. People, especially the upper class, were upset. Courtiers who weren't in on the plot were like, oh my, am I next? And the commoners who never loved the father and probably had similar fear but less respect for the son seemed a little too excited about the prospect that maybe Dion was going to return with an army. So Dionysius basically went with the time-tested political approach of deny, deny, deny. Exile? No, it's not an exile. I sent Dion to Italy on a secret mission. Yeah, that's the ticket. And he can have all his stuff because he's still my guy. So Dion was given his money, but he was still stuck being in exile. Now, Diodorus Siculus, in his monumental Library of History, had a slightly different take on all of it. He wrote that Dionysius was jealous of Dion, thought he might be popular and powerful enough to take charge of the city himself, so Dionysius prepared to bring some charges against him where the punishment would be execution for the old advisor. Dion's buddies got wind of it, and he fled the city with the help of his brother Megacles and another leading member of Dionysius' staff, the admiral Heraclides. Speaking of sticky situations, Plato was visiting this whole time. How embarrassing. The old philosopher was put under a sort of house arrest in Sicily. He was eventually freed. Again, we're not quite sure why. Plutarch says it was a resumption of hostilities with the Carthaginians that made Dionysius get rid of the distraction of holding Plato. Other sources say once again friends came in to the philosopher's aid. This time a Pythagorean philosopher secured his release. Either way, two trips to Syracuse, and twice he was held against his will. Surely he wouldn't go back. Anyway, with money still coming in from Sicily, Dion was able to live comfortably and made his way to Athens. He was popular enough that he did a big tour of Greece. I'm not going to say they called Dion the Wanderer, but he roamed around, around, around. He made his way to Sparta, and he was made an honorary citizen there. Dionysius got word of all the good times Dion was having on his goodwill tour of Greece and cut off his funds. He also begged Plato to return, saying he finally understood everything the philosopher had been telling him. Plato wasn't enthused about going. You could imagine why. But the tyrant said he'd give Dion all of his money and property back if Plato came. So Dion convinced him to go. Of course, when Plato showed up and started discussing his friend Dion, Dionysius wasn't really cooperative. The tyrant pulled some more dirty tyrant-like tricks, apparently putting Plato in charge of a bunch of mercenaries that wanted to kill him or something. Anyway, what's important is that Plato made it to Syracuse, everything quickly fell apart, and Plato was once again spirited out by his allies. Dion, finding out about this and about the general abuse his family had received back in Syracuse, decided he had to go defend his honor or whatever. 
Eventually, Dionysius even had Dion's wife, the tyrant's own aunt, remarried against her will. So Dion was like, action movie star angry. Plato returned to mainland Greece to find Dion planning for war. Plato, something like 60 years old at this point, after three trips to Syracuse, decided he was done with politics. He wished his pal Dion luck, but went home to go back to writing and teaching. However, some of Dion's friends, many of them Plato's other disciples, were happy to help out with the invasion. Dion gathered a mercenary force on the island off Zanchithos, off the western coast of the Peloponnese. It was not a terribly large force. Plutarch says less than 800 men, but they were veterans. They were hired first, and then they weren't thrilled when they found out they were going to war against the tyrant of Syracuse. Dionysius was a powerful man at the time, thanks to what his father had built. Diodorus Siculus notes that he, quote, had at his disposal 400 ships of war, infantry numbering nearly 100,000, 10,000 horse, and as great a store of arms, food, and money as one in all probability possessed who had to maintain lavishly the aforesaid forces. And, apart from all we have mentioned, had a city which was the largest of the cities of Hellas, unquote. But Dion had friends and allies in the city, and he addressed the mercenaries. He told them they wouldn't be fighting against the Syracusans. Rather, they would be commanding them against the mercenaries the tyrant had at his disposal. The people were just waiting to revolt. They were going to go help him. His speech worked, and they were off. Five ships in total including a few laden with supplies, set off in 357 BC to go take Syracuse. It took them 13 days to reach Sicily, but Dion didn't like the landing spot. The ship's pilots wanted to land, fearing they'd be forced out to sea, but it was too close to the Syracusan force for Dion's liking, so they kept on. They drifted south, way south. Plutarch says they almost ran aground at Kirkenna, which is an island off Tunisia. They spent another week or so drifting and made their way back to Sicily. They landed on the southern coast, pretty far to the west, at the city of Heraclea Minoa. It was controlled by the Carthaginians, but it wasn't a big city and it was lightly guarded. There was a general panic as this band of hardened warriors came ashore and marched up to the town square, and then quickly secured it. But Dion actually knew the Carthaginian commander from all of his negotiations with them, and he assured this man that they meant no harm. So there was no battle. The city was handed back to the Carthaginians, and Dion and his men were given lodging and supplies. While there, he almost certainly sent out men to try to communicate with his allies within Syracuse. He soon found out remarkable news. Dionysius had left the city. He'd left Sicily. He had taken a large force to Italy to fight in some other conflict. Dion wanted to play it safe and secure his alliances, but his mercenary troop would have none of that, and they marched out immediately. Other cities joined them on the way, no doubt eager to rid southeastern Sicily of the dominance of Dionysius. Diodorus wrote, On the march he persuaded the people of Acragas, Gela, and some of the Sicanians and Sicles who dwelt in the interior, also the people of Camarina, to join in the liberation of the Syracusans, and then advance to overthrow the tyrant. 
Soon, more than 20,000 soldiers were gathered. Likewise, many also of the Greeks from Italy and of the Messenians were summoned, and all came in haste with great enthusiasm. Unquote. News of their imminent approach reached the city, and the multitudes came out to greet them. Dionysius's allies, including Timocrates, the one who had married Dion's wife Aliti, fled the city. Some went to the Acropolis, which was still held by a garrison. Those who couldn't flee were set upon, and men called tale-bearers, whose job it was to report everything they heard people say on the streets to the tyrant, were sought out and killed. Dion entered the city without a fight. He soon stood in front of the Acropolis and announced to the city that they were free. They quickly gave him and his brother Megacles absolute power. Dion insisted on a group of leaders to help him, and they named a group of 20 men to form his leadership council. He had captured the city, but not the Acropolis or the citadel, so he began to besiege it. But his enemy had access to the port, apparently, because after about a week, Dionysius showed up with his fleet and set up shop there. Meanwhile, Dion armed the citizens with the couple thousand pieces of weapons and armor he had brought with him from Athens. The tyrant attempted negotiations, but the people rejected them, and Dion told him he'd have to first give up any claims to the throne. In return for protection against any reprisals, Dionysius said he'd like to negotiate based on this condition. But he was full of it. He was just trying to buy time. After a few more days of wasting time, and noticing that the Syracusans weren't as vigilant with their defense as maybe they should have been, he sent a group of his own men, Plutarch calls them barbarians, rushing at the siege walls, and they overtook the defenders there. Diodorus describes the battle was in such a confined space that it was as if in a stadium. As panic spread throughout the area, Dion, who at this point was a little over 50 years old, charged into the thick of battle. Now, we don't really have knowledge of Dion's military exploits when he was younger and served Dionysius I. But Diodorus Siculus introduced him by writing that Dion, quote, in matter of courage and skill in the art of war, far surpassed the other Syracusans of his time, unquote. So suffice to say he wasn't just a philosopher and courtier who had grabbed a sword. He was quickly recognized, and the battle seemed to converge around him, and he was attacked on all sides. He reputedly killed many enemies and broke their line before he was wounded himself. His shield had been pierced several times, and he was finally knocked down. His men were able to pull him to safety. Now wounded, he put one of his generals in charge. Realizing he was in no shape to actually fight anymore, he instead jumped on a horse and rode through the city, rallying people to come to his aid. He also gathered more of his mercenary force that were guarding other parts of the city. Eventually, the attackers were pushed back and forced to retreat to the Acropolis. The Syracusans were victorious. But Dionysius remained in the citadel, and a new complication arose. An exiled admiral of Dionysius named Heraclides, who may have helped Dion escape years before, showed up with a large force of triremes and armed men. Now, he was coming as an ally of Dion, but he was a populace and the public liked him a lot. They immediately named him the new Admiral of the Fleet, which kind of rubbed Dion the wrong way. He told the people of Syracuse it didn't make sense to say that he was in charge if they went around naming his officers. So, 
they begrudgingly revoked the title, and he then turned around and named Heraclides admiral again, which made the people happy, because he was quite popular, but it also made it clear just what the pecking order was. Dionysius still had a chance, as one of his father's close allies, Philistus, came with a fleet to bail him out. A battle was fought in the water, but the more than 70-year-old Philistus was surrounded and defeated, and then killed himself rather than face the wrath of his countrymen. At that point, Dionysius realized no more help was coming. At first, he offered his surrender to Dion as long as he was able to sail to Italy without being attacked, and to be given the revenues from some of his lands. Dion told him to ask the people of the city, but as the negotiations went on, the tyrant fled the city and sailed off, leaving his son Apollocrates in charge of the remaining garrison. This, of course, made the new admiral Heraclides look bad, letting the besieged tyrant escape, so he decided it was time to play politics. He allied with those in the city opposed to Dion, and yes, there were those people, not so much that they didn't appreciate their liberation, they just thought now that they were liberated, they should be getting a lot more money and land. Dion, on the other hand, was trying to be more careful with their newfound independence, especially considering the enemy was still holed up in the Acropolis. The people of the city elected new leaders, like not Dion, and even tried to buy off Dion's mercenaries. His mercenaries remained loyal, but it soon appeared that Dion was in actual danger. His men surrounded him to protect him and worked to get him out of the city. The Syracusans, in the midst of the commotion, began to realize they significantly outnumbered Dion and his men. They saw they could maybe surround him and take him out. This sounds crazy, I know, but realize that when I say the Syracusans here, I don't mean everyone in the city. It was the opponents of Dion, who happened to be a lot of the commoners and the poorest men there, as opposed to the middle and upper class. But they were also the most numerous. Dion did not want to fight the people of his beloved home city, and had his mercenaries essentially scream and yell and then fake a charge, which sent everyone running. Then Dion turned and marched out of the city to the nearby town of Leontini. The rabble who had gone after Dion were roundly mocked for their cowardice, so they marched out to pursue him. You know, that guy who had done nothing but liberate the city. As they approached, he wheeled his men around to attack, no longer willing to spare these people who had now chased after him outside of Syracuse. In response to the hardened group of mercenaries allaying themselves in battle order, the Syracusans immediately fled back to the city. All the while, as you may recall, there was a bunch of Dionysius's troops still holed up in the city. And while the citizens were busy chasing their own liberator out of the city, Nipsius of Naples sailed up with a bunch of food for Dionysius's besieged men. The Dionysius allied troops had been about ready to give up the citadel, so the arrival of supplies and fresh food uplifted their spirits. But while they were busy feeling all relieved about being relieved, the Syracusans got into some triremes and attacked their boats. A small naval battle ensued, and the Syracusans won. Ha, you may have fresh food now, but we sunk some of your ships. After this victory, the Syracusans decided to party so hard that they neglected their defenses once again. Nipsius recognized the opportunity and was able to attack the siege works. His men busted through the wall and began ransacking the city. Diodorus writes, quote, Once the marketplace had come into possession of the enemy, the victors straightaway attacked the residences. They carried off much property, 
and took off as slaves many women and children and household servants besides. Continuous engagements occurred, and many were killed, and not a few wounded. So they passed the night, slaying one another at random in the darkness, and every quarter teemed with the dead." Unable to mount an organized defense as the city was being sacked, what did the Syracusans do? Of course they ran off to beg Dion for help. Dion received them and broke down in tears, telling his mercenaries that he would demand no more of them, but he could not sit by and watch his city be destroyed, despite what many of the citizens had just done to him. His mercenaries, though, were still on his side, and together they marched back to Syracuse. The attack on the city had abated as some of the tyrant's men had retired back to the citadel. But upon Dion's approach, Nipsius sent out another, larger group, which completely overwhelmed the whole siege wall and began burning the city down, killing those that they encountered. Anyone left in the city who had opposed Dion's return acquiesced as there was true chaos and destruction now. Messengers rode out to his force, begging him to hurry, and still miles outside the city, he and his force broke into a run. They entered through one of the unguarded gates, and according to Plutarch, he immediately, quote, sent his light-armed troops to charge upon the enemy in order that the Syracusans might take courage at the sight. He also marshaled his men-at-arms in person, together with those of the citizens who kept running up and forming with them, dividing his commands and forming companies in column, that he might make a formidable attack for many points at once, unquote. Despite the fire now blazing in the city, Dion and his men were able to push back the invaders. Many fled back into the citadel, but others were not so lucky and were killed on the streets of the city. It was another major victory for Dion, and the Syracusans were again indebted to him. They once again named him general and gave him absolute power. The populace, Heraclides, as well as a few of the other generals, begged him for forgiveness. He decided to be magnanimous, although he did rub it in a bit. A little of the old, hey, don't get too mad at these men. They're warriors, and they've only spent their lives training to fight. I went to Plato's Academy. I learned about justice and how to treat people right. You know, really annoying stuff, making sure that everyone knew he was the better man, that sort of thing. Then he directed everyone to help rebuild the siege wall, and with the help of all the citizens, he made quick work of it. He was once again the hero of Syracuse, the leading man and the savior of the city. But the political machinations continued, and the people demanded redistribution of property. This was, of course, the populist Heraclides' platform, and it may well have been enacted when Dion was gone, but with him again in supreme command, he put a stop to it, which again turned the common folk against him. Dion was trying to enact a change in the way Syracuse was run, and in doing so, while some of the people probably agreed with him, many of the poorer citizens felt like he himself was, well, kind of behaving like a tyrant. Soon, Heraclides was again plotting against him. He set up with part of the fleet in Messana, and may have even allied with Dionysius again. Dionysius, for his part, sent Pharax of Sparta with a group of mercenaries to attack Dion. Dion marched his men out toward western Sicily and lost a brief skirmish, but he regrouped and was ready to fight a more substantive battle. That's when he received news that Heraclides was gunning for Syracuse to take it for himself. Perhaps this was all coordinated. Pharax would distract Dion while Heraclides swooped in, or perhaps it was just serendipitous timing. But either way, it didn't work. Dion took a contingent of his men and booked it back to the city as fast as he could. 
By the time Heraclides showed up with his triremes, it was too late. Dion was back in the city. Heraclides left since he couldn't just march in and take the city. There was no fight, and eventually he was able to reconcile with Dion again, for a time. Meanwhile, there were still a bunch of Dionysius's men in the citadel. They realized they weren't getting bailed out, so Apollocrates and his men surrendered to Dion, who let them leave the city unharmed. He was finally reunited with his wife, as well as his sister, who had been kept at the Acropolis throughout the whole conflict. Syracuse was now truly free, and Dion was again the hero of the day. But Heraclides was still popular, and he saw an opportunity. He started calling Dion out for his opposition to populist policies that the commoners wanted to enact. He hadn't destroyed the citadel, he hadn't exhumed the body of Dionysius I to defile it, and he had brought in outsiders to help him establish his government. A fan of Plato, of course, his government would not be a pure democracy, but an enlightened aristocracy with some democratic participation. So there was still plenty of room, despite all of his contributions, for a large group of Syracusans to distrust Dion. Speaking of distrust, Dion realized he couldn't just get around Heraclides and all of his rabble-rousing. He'd had several opportunities to have him executed in the past, one where there would be little complaint by the majority of people, when Heraclides had just betrayed him and, in effect, the city itself. But he'd forgiven the admiral every time. Now, after two years of back and forth, Dion decided he'd had enough. So he had his rival assassinated. And soon after Heraclides was murdered, it became apparent who arranged it. The Syracusan common folk were resentful, and Dion had to issue a sort of mea culpa. He arranged for an elaborate funeral and gave an oration there. And according to Plutarch, at least, the people were convinced by Dion that the city would never have been at peace as long as the two survived. Perhaps now Dion could finally settle in and rule the city the way he had always envisioned. It was 355 BC, and he had freed the city and then given it true independence by outlasting Dionysius and his son. He had eliminated his main rival, and it seems he had even brought many of the common folk over to his side. Now all he had to do was go back to his days at the academy with Plato to figure out how to make the perfect government. Oh yeah, Plato's academy. So one of his buddies from the academy was a man named Callippus, an Athenian who had joined his invasion. By this time, Callippus was one of Dion's foremost leaders, popular and well-respected. But Callippus was no Dion. He was offered a large bribe by Dionysius to murder Dion. And he thought, yeah, that's a good idea. He spent a little time pulling together a group of men who would do the deed, and people who disliked Dion's policies, and others who were just willing to do whatever for the right amount of money. At this time, and nobody says it's related to any of these intrigues, Dion's son fell out of a building, either from a window or playing on the roof, and he died. Dion essentially became paralyzed with grief. Even after his wife, Areti, and his sister, Aristomachi, the widow of Dionysius I, discovered Callippus's plan, Dion did nothing. In front of these women who confronted him, Callippus swore up and down that he was not doing anything wrong, like he literally swore to the gods, but he still went forward with his plan. Men soon broke into Dion's house and murdered him. Dion had only been in charge of Syracuse over the course of about three years, and in the middle of that time he had been kicked out for a spell. His reforms intended to create Plato's ideal republic didn't really have time to take hold, 
and with Dion's death, so went that dream. Calippus, already popular in the city, soon took charge. He lasted only about a year before either another general took the city or possibly it just revolted against him. He fell and was soon killed by his own men. There were a couple of more tyrants, and then Dionysius II actually grabbed power again. He didn't last long, and a Corinthian named Timoleon kicked him out and seized power. Syracusan politics settled down a bit at that point, and while there were still years of turmoil, from 345 BC until 215 BC, three different men ruled for about three quarters of that time, with Hiero II ruling for 60 years. Soon after, as part of the Second Punic War, the Romans besieged the city and captured it in 212 BC. It would remain part of the Roman Empire for about six centuries, give or take. Then, for about another 300 years after that, when it was reconquered by the Eastern Roman Empire. Dion had first served the tyrant of Syracuse, then ousted the tyrant of Syracuse, but his dreams of making a benevolent aristocracy in his city weren't successful. Plutarch wrote about Dion in his parallel lives, and the Roman he thought was aligned with Dion was Marcus Junius Brutus, the leading assassin of Julius Caesar, who sought to preserve the Roman Republic. Of the two men, he wrote, quote, both were cut off untimely without being able to achieve the objects to which they had determined to devote the fruits of their many and great struggles, unquote. Dion, who wanted nothing more than to turn Syracuse into a benevolently ruled city, which would be the best of all Greek cities, did almost everything he needed to create that situation. Barry wrote about Dion, quote, His object was not to secure tyranny for any man, but to get rid of tyranny altogether. His darling project was to establish at Syracuse a constitution which would so far as possible conform to the theoretical views of Plato, and which would probably have taken the shape of a limited kingship, unquote. But Dion never got there. He was so intent on making these changes that he didn't realize he was making mistakes along the way. He didn't realize he was beginning to kind of look like a tyrant himself, and his public support left as the Syracusans feared their liberator would just end up being their tyrant. Next time, We'll leave the Greek world, we'll leave the ancient world, and we'll travel forward about a thousand years to around 600 AD and to a ruler who created an empire whose influence is still felt today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>